Hi, my name is Jack Lawrence, and this is episode three of my podcast. My guest today is Ethan Milne, better known as Tall Psychology on TikTok. Ethan is a doctoral student at the Ivy Business School at Western University, where he researches the role of aggression in consumer behavior. Ethan has had his research published in top medical journals. He holds two patents, and at the time of recording, he has over 350,000 followers on TikTok, where he makes content generally focused around psychology, behavioral science, and of course, ethical dilemmas, where he begins each video with the phrase, don't answer the poll yet. In this episode, we discuss, among other things, combating misinformation on TikTok, how brands are using social media in new ways, the pitfalls of empathy as a tool for moral decisions, why perhaps creators should block people more often, and of course, we consider some ethical dilemmas. Ethan's a great, fascinating guy. I learned a lot in this conversation, and I hope you will as well. Take two stone tablets, Carve. Problems are soluble. Problems are inevitable. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. And that simple statement is the key to science. Why did you do this? Oh, that's the thousand uh, why in this morning. There is no why. There's no why. There's no why. Ethan, thank you so much for joining me today. Really excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. I have um, so many questions for you. To begin with, obviously, I know you through TikTok, but what is your background? What's your story in your own words? Sure. So I uh, grew up in Canada. I still live in Canada. Um, I grew up in a rural town called Goderidge. Um, it's like a, a, a small town on the shores of Lake Huron, which is one of the, the great lakes in Canada. Um, and my background, so I, I do psychology type stuff now, but I actually got my start doing medical research. Um, so when I was in high school, uh, I did some inventions where I invented like uh, pediatric spine boards got a couple of patents and publications in emergency medicine journals. And I really thought that I was going to be a doctor. Um, like that was my, that was my big goal in life. My dad was a doctor. His dad was a doctor. My other grandfather was a doctor. Okay. A lot of doctors in the family. Yeah. Yeah. That checks um, out. I, I went, I went to university, uh, um, for my undergraduate and I took some biology courses and realized that I absolutely hated it. It was boring. Uh, numbed my brain. It was awful. And so I decided, screw it, I'm not going to be a doctor. Um, and I was enrolled in a philosophy of science program. Uh, and then I got the hook. I got bored with philosophy of science. Oh, too. okay. Too Maybe it's not it. the hook. Um, yeah. Well, and, and then I was like, well, I want to do something. Yeah. And I transferred to business school. I sold my soul. Um, I went to business school, really liked it. And I really liked uh, marketing. And because I really liked marketing, I thought, well, you know, I've always wanted to do research. Um, I've done research in my past, although I was on the medical side. But what if I did research uh, with marketing? Because when you go to a lot of marketing classes, people will tell you things like, uh, you know, if you design your advertisements in this way, more people will come to your business. And I, and I would sit there thinking, well, how do you know that works? Like, I sincerely doubt that changing your advertisement from red to blue is going to do anything. Um, and so I figured marketing research would be really cool. And I enrolled in a marketing uh phd uh focusing on consumer behavior or consumer psychology and that's a that's a whole other thing um but that, that's kind of the fast forward through my life that's an amazing story wow okay yeah. so rewind so the patents happened wait tell me about the patents again okay so you have you have a line of doctors that was something that established but wait before you were studying medicine or what was that yeah, so I basically my my entire family uh, was was medical doctors, and so I was interested in medicine. And when I was in high school, I really liked doing science fairs. Yeah, um, I, I do you have science fair type things? Uh, in we don't. We're not that cool. No, the whole stereotypical okay. like ah oh, the the I feel like there's the cliche um what Hollywood scene whereby someone has a really terrible science experiment, but really there's a hint of genius within it. This is always alien to sure. me watching this. I'm like, now nah, we never we we didn't have fairs. Anyway, that's not enough about my life. 
go on. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Like, like I maybe it's like an American thing in Canada just copies America. Um, but we, we we had science fairs, and uh, you know, I was thinking of a science fair project, and I remember my dad was talking about uh, th- there's this problem with emergency medicine when children are presenting to an emergency department with a spinal injury or something like that. Yeah. Um, because when you get a kid into the emergency department, you need to pump them full of drugs so that they don't die. Right. It's really important that you do that, and also it's important to make sure that you're giving them the right amount of drugs. So you need to figure out, you know. How much does the kid weigh in order to figure out how much drugs to give them? But if they yeah. have a spinal injury, you can't put them on a weight scale, right? You can't stand them up and say, well, here's a bathroom scale, stand on and we'll measure you. Because if they have a spinal injury, that could make it worse. And so I figured, well, why don't you just put a weight scale inside a spine board and then you can directly take their weight? Um, because right now what they used to do was they would kind of look at the kid's length, their height mm-hmm. and say, oh, you're about 150 centimeters we're going to say you're like 80 pounds, right? Yeah. Like, and, and they would kind of guesstimate weight. And, and that was fine, right? It's certainly better than just kind of inventing a weight because you, you know that kids who are X height are probably Y weight, um, but it's not perfect. So I, I did a whole like parent's basement uh, kind of thing where I built my own spine board, some metal plates, and I deconstructed a bathroom scale, did a bunch of soldering and everything to, to build one. And I eventually came up with this spine board that actually worked, right? You could put kids on it, you could restrain them um, as if they were in an emergency situation, and you could actually take their weight um, so that you can give them more accurate drug dosing. And so I got a patent for that. Um, I got it professionally made by someone who wasn't a uh, grade 10 student. Um, I did some validation testing at some emergency departments like the McMaster's Children's Emergency Department. And I actually found that my device was more accurate than kind of this uh, length-based weight estimation tool. And so I got some publications in the Annals of Emergency Medicine and the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine uh, just for those validation tests. That's amazing. That's so cool. So your family must have been thinking, right, yes, he's got the genes. He's already innovating in medicine. It was all going well. And then you had this crushing realization that actually outside of the problem solving, it wasn't for you. Well, and, and, you, and you know what? I, I'm sure that if I had stuck through and if I had gone into medicine, I would find it very entertaining. But intro philosophy is very boring. Or sorry, intro uh, biology is very boring. I was going to say, okay, right. So, I mean, but the, you say that. It must have been a really dramatic decision having already, because I, uh, I mean, I imagine if I was in your shoes, having had that sort of success and recognition and actually done something that contributed I would have very heavily internalized the idea of, oh, I'm going to be it. I'm going to be this. This is the this is the field I'm going to go into. Right? That you got some uh, affirmation. So, I mean, how boring was this class <laughs> for it to completely turn you off? I mean, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't super boring, but I, I took it. I didn't do well in it. I'm like, you know what? Like, I I don't want to see myself do this for the next three years. And it wasn't um, as crushing because you know I had this prior history of doing medical research. But I'd always internalized that like being weird in whatever your chosen field was is a good thing. Right. Um, and so even if I wasn't doing specifically medicine, the fact that I had a background in doing medical research would be helpful in kind of whatever I did, because it's a fun thing that you can talk about. And it's it's another domain of expertise you have that people probably wouldn't in philosophy or eventually in marketing. Yeah, I never would have guessed in a million years that you would have done that uh, just because it's a very random thing. That's uh, That's incredible. That's really cool. Okay, so consumer psychology. You take your long art and then to doing this. Yeah. What is your current read? So you mentioned, you know, whether you change the font or not. Sorry, change the color to red or blue. You weren't necessarily convinced that that would make any um, impact. What specifically are you researching then within that field? Sure. So I, I technically I'm in the marketing department of my university, yep. um, and so I'm in the the field of consumer behavior. And yep. if you think about consumer behavior, it's kind of like psychology, but specifically applied to people acting in their capacity as consumers. So we're all individuals, but sometimes we're consuming things. And when we consume things, I'm interested in how you think about that. 
And my specific research topic is I research aggression. Um, that, that's kind of my, my big thing. So I'm really interested in how people engage in moralized aggression. So right. why they go after others for perceived moral slights, um, how they might be status seeking when they do so, and also how they might be retributive when they do so. So people will go after others in this moral way, saying that they've done an evil thing and they will attack them and they could do so either to look good or to enact punishment on someone who they think has kind of violated a social norm. And what I'm specifically looking at is a lot of this research in psychology focuses on inter-individual relationships. So you might have a friend and your friend murders someone, right? And, and you think that's a, like a, a moral violation. And so, and so you go after them. You're like, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Yeah. But we do the same thing with brands, right? When brands do bad things, if a, if a company dumps toxic waste into a river, We'll, we'll go after the brands as well. And, and there's a whole body of research that we often treat brands uh, sort of like they're people. We have mm. relationships with brands. We can form attachments with brands. We can love them. We can feel a sense of security just by having a relationship with a brand. Um, and when those bonds are broken and when the brand violates some norm of yours, you get aggressive. You might spread negative word of mouth about them on social media. You might vandalize their property. You might try and cheat them out of something. You might lie about them. And so I'm really interested in that aggressive behavior. I think that's really cool. So in which case, TikTok just must be the perfect platform for you. Firstly, this puts into a lot of context the uh, uh, you know various different dilemmas that you put forward to your uh, audiences. Don't answer the poll yet. But when you, you must see then looking at the Duolingo account or Ryanair or... I mean, do you have a particular brand account on TikTok that's particularly fascinating to you or... Well, I love the Duolingo account. And one That's of the so reasons- good. That's so good. Yeah, well, one of the reasons so I love amazing. it is because a lot of brand accounts, like they'll do nice things. Right? You can, there, there's some unique brand accounts. I don't know if you know the the Steak Um brand account where I they do a lot no. of science communication. Uh, they, what? They're very popular. Okay. Yeah, they're really popular early in the pandemic because the brand manager for the Steak Um brand and Steak Um are like, uh, it's like a ready meal at home where they sell you like strips of really bad beef. <laughs> Um, and, and then you, you, you kind of like microwave it and put it in a, like a sandwich. And yeah, I guess yeah. their social media manager was really interested in epistemology and science. And they would do these like long tweet threads explaining how to think about numbers during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially at the start. Uh-huh. And they got really popular. So Stakeum is like an interesting, unique one. I think Duolingo is another unique one that I love because Duolingo explicitly signals that they're doing bad things. Right. Like, like mm. they'll, they'll make these jokes about the Duolingo owl coming and murdering your family or it'll <laughs> thirst over Dua Lipa. Yeah. I think that's an interesting way to take your kind of kind of brand account. And the, the other thing that's neat is you also see the rise of social media managers for the brand accounts themselves developing followings. So mm. the woman who wears the Duolingo costume, she made a TikTok where she revealed herself to be the Duolingo person and she really? built a following. And she'll have the Duolingo account comment on her videos. And, you know, she says that it's for her, but I fully believe that this is supported by the corporation of Duolingo, where they're trying to humanize the marketing team by giving it this young, uh, very charismatic face. And, and you identify a little bit more with the marketing team because it feels like they're another kind of Gen Z person or maybe a millennial like you. They're a lot more relatable because you see the face behind the mask. And you can instill you, you can still enjoy kind of the show that the mask is putting on. That's yeah. I mean, that's a. I feel like you've articulated a lot of thoughts that people might have subconsciously had there. It is fascinating to me. I do, it does feel like the next generation of marketing 
when I'm just sort of observing it as definitely a you know non-expert, non-researcher, just a mindless consumer like everyone, <laughs> like everyone else. Yeah, you, well, you, you you can build your own influencers, which is super cool, That's right? Just, it used yeah. to be like brands would have to like leverage that or, or like latch onto other people. They can just kind of make their social media managers popular. It is bizarre, yeah, and also just I think the pure value, yeah, at least to my mind, in just being entertaining. The idea that I think uh, also Ryan Reynolds has leaned into. Obviously, he's basically a meme on TikTok. But, you know, you go on YouTube and most of the comments will be, these are the only ads that I deliberately click on. And just if you make entertaining stuff, people will watch it just straight up. And one way of being entertaining is being relatable, I suppose. Uh, Yeah, we'll we'll see if we can get the... (laughs) I feel like uh, I'll be able to quit TikTok when Duolingo comments on one of my videos. Then you've made it. That's that for me is the that's the that's the gatekeeper. (laughs) Yeah, the, the the high leaves, but you certainly remember some accounts. I remember um, uh, Hank Green cyberbullied me once on TikTok. I, I said that joke. No. He, well, I, I I made this really popular video where I, I Rick rolled people. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for whatever reason, the videos I make that aren't educational always do best. <laughs> it's um, the same. But, it's the same with me. I put all this time yeah. into explaining a concept, and then I do some dumb one off the cuff, and it's like, okay, fine. No, I I know. So th- this one got I think like fifteen million views, um, and thousands of duets and stitches or whatever and and people using the sound uh, a lot of people that i had recognized but i made this video where i, I kind of set it up i said hey are you smarter than a harvard undergraduate because uh, that that would kind of get people's minds working yep. like are you smarter than a harvard undergraduate we're going to do this word association test and then i said i, I basically said i'm going to say a word and then you said the opposite of the word and so i said the opposite of the lyrics to rick astley's never going to give you up so that by the time people got to the end of this word association game, they had said, never going give you up. And then I played the sound and I smirked a little bit and then the video cuts, right? And people realized, oh, this was like a, a, sh- a shell game the entire time. And when I made that video, uh, I, I put in blocked text above my head, are you smarter than a Harvard undergraduate? But instead of saying Harvard, I spelled it Havrard. Uh, my, my, my finger slipped. <laughs> so good. Um, and, and and I and I I would wager that the the spelling mistake made the video more popular because people could comment that and would drive engagement. But I remember Hank Green made fun of me for saying Harvard in the middle of a in the middle of a comment section. So I, so I have that in my mind that Hank Green has cyberbullied me. <laughs> Just carry that with you. Yeah, I made one because I got my sort of first quote unquote sort of viral TikTok uh, with stitching a Hank Green video, and sure. so I always felt that I I wanted to sort of acknowledge it in some way. So I did a Hank Green tier list. Uh, and then he commented saying, uh, you know, Hank Green staying up past his bedtime, F tier or whatever. And I was like, cool, I've done my bit. He's seen a video of mine. I can move on from this now. Nice. So, oh, that's so funny. How did you get started with TikTok then? Uh, I also have another weird story for how I got started with TikTok. I go met my, my girlfriend during the pandemic. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't use TikTok. Uh, we, we met, I think, March 2020, I want to say. Um, or maybe no, May 2020. Um, neither of us had used TikTok. March 2020 was when the lockdowns happened. We met in May 2020, and neither of us used TikTok, but we had seen like YouTube compilations of TikTok yeah. videos. It was still kind of like, oh, it's a kid's app. It's cringe. I mean, it's still cringe and it's still a kid's <laughs> app, but you know, we, we, we thought also. of it that way. <laughs> yeah. And, and then we thought, hey, what, what if we made our own TikToks? And you know what? We're going to race. We're going to race to a thousand followers. Um, and so, I made an account. I didn't make the account that I have right now. I had a different account that was called, I think, Mr. Dr. Richard. Mr. Um, Dr. Richard. Because the, the business school that I'm at is called the Richard Ivy Business School. And so I, th- I always thought it was funny to label myself Richard. Um, 
And I didn't make psychology content. I didn't make marketing content. I had a Ratatouille hate page uh, because I thought, you know, how could I get a thousand followers the fastest? I thought I'd have to think of some gimmick. And I decided to make these like long effort posts where I would actually dig into French tort law to show that Ratatouille violated, you know, a lot of these, you know, labor uh, rights, labor restrictions. So for instance, I found that French restaurant labor law suggests that you need, I believe, one union representative for every 12 employees. And if you look in the video when Remy brings in all these rats to work in the restaurant, uh, there's a lot of rats there, certainly more than 12. And when he delegates them to all the tasks, he doesn't assign any union representatives, right? And (laughs) and so I would make a video where I dig into that, right? And, And I would make this whole list where you can actually look at the video evidence that when the rats go out and attack the health inspector, which is itself, you know, a really bad thing to do. You shouldn't attack a government official on a uh, company property, especially in your capacity as employees at the company. When they go out and attack that restaurant person and then the rats come back, while they wash themselves in the first scene when they come to the restaurant, they don't wash themselves after they've attacked the health inspector when they've run out onto the street into car exhaust. Um, I love how much detail you still have about this. You're like, this is the exact thing. I was really passionate, you know, I, because really this was just something that I thought about a lot, right? Um, and so, so that was my first account, and it did not do well. Um, what? It, no, surely. I was about. I was hoping I, I, that the next thing was for, this is actually a larger account. I still do this to this day. I was. I I, I I had a couple of videos that went viral, but uh, no, no, it, it didn't turn out super well. Um, I did not reach a thousand followers. My girlfriend beat me quite fast. Really. Um, what she, she did, do? and uh, she just made like fashion content, right? Like, like she would post like a video of her. She she wore like these really really cool leather boots that had flame prints on them. Oh, okay, uh, that yeah. looked like a bad Hawaiian shirt, but as boots, I, super cool, right? Um, and 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 she definitely blew me out of the water with that. And I decided, you know what? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot, you know, because I, I I did this one thing, it didn't work out. Well, what am I good at? You know, besides, there's only so far you can take Ratatouille hate posting. Um, and I said, well, I'm starting this PhD program in consumer behavior, consumer psychology. So why don't I make um, a channel where I talk about behavioral science research? And, and, and that's how Tall Psychology started. And I started making videos there. Amazing. Amazing. And how long was it after you started making videos there? Because, I mean, obviously you'd lost this challenge uh, and sure. potentially just like internalize this. No, it's not over yet. Uh, yeah. How long after you started to make uh, videos around what maybe your first or second passion i don't know the ratatouille thing was pretty detailed dude <laughs> did you start to see uh you know you're getting a lot of views or i uh, have one sure. breakout so video I, or, or how was it i had uh, there's a few breakout videos that i remember i um so i i made the current account that i have tall psychology mm-hmm. about a year and a half ago and i remember maybe three or four months in i started noticing that there was a lot of uh, misinformation about psychological findings that were mm. on the app there were a lot of yeah. these really big creators who would who would say these things and I, i'd look at it and be like I, that's not true like 100% like i don't even need to read the paper to know that what you're communicating isn't correct right mm. because they would make these really large claims that you know if you slightly change your language your friend's behavior Will, will automatically change because they respond to the slight change in language. And I'm like, the effect size of that is, is massive. You'd never see that in a real psychology paper, but they would act as if this was kind of an evidence-based thing. And so I made some videos where I said, hey, this is misinformation. And I actually did like a deep dive into one creator's videos, only JS. Uh, she, she's very controversial. Yes. Now. Okay. Right. Yeah. So you, yeah. you also, you've also, she, I feel like most, any TikToks I see involving her are 
someone who's taken a clip from her video, like done hashtag stitch. It's not actually a stitch, uh, like an yeah. organic stitch, and then just basically saying how something she's claimed is false. So that's my only exposure oh, to that so creator. That's that's your exposure to okay. So yeah. I I started that maybe like a, a year and a half ago, and, and other people had corrected on misinformation before, but for whatever reason, the, the videos have made a better blow up, and I went from I think maybe 4,000 followers to about 30,000 followers. So it was, it yeah. was a really big jump for me. Yeah. Um, only GS later, uh, she got canceled because she, uh, in her youth, was uh, saying pretty the horrific racial slur to people uh, in DMs. Right, um, okay. So, so most, of the, most of the content you'll see responding to her now is like kind of bringing up the, the, the old stuff that she said. So I, I made that one video. I got 30,000 views. I did some other uh, kind of misinformation correction things. One, one that I did, there was, a, there was a creator. I think her name was Raquel. Um, where her whole shtick was like every day she would do behavioral science, but it was often like point to people in the wrong direction. Like she would give people advice and I'd be like, well, I've read research on this. And the effect actually goes the opposite way. Like you're giving people bad advice. Right. So I I made a video about that. She blocked me. And I thought that was a really bad thing at the time. I mean, Hmm. we'll, we'll talk about blocking people later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember she blocked me at the time. And one of my mutuals who at the time was about the same size as me, Dr. Inna saw that and made a video saying, how dare you block people who criticize you? And Dr. Inna's account blew up. Like she went from, I think she was like 20,000 followers at the time. She went to like 600,000, 700,000. And like, wow. oh my God, yeah. right? The, like this happened. And it was because I got blocked by the, this woman, Raquel. Um, and, and then I stopped doing misinformation, check-in, and I moved into doing more uh, moral dilemmas, moral psychology. Um, and those videos blew up and I kind of skyrocketed after that doing moral dilemma type content. Amazing. Uh, well, I, it's really interesting. Also, I've seen lots of Dr. Inna's videos. Uh, I feel like her content's also great. I love how um, just like direct she is with calling out the nonsense on TikTok. Yep. Uh, I had a lot of hesitation. I made the first video I made, which was calling out something which I knew was straightforwardly false, was a creator who was claiming something about um, using quantum entanglement, which proved telepathy. But what really fascinated me was that in the corner of the video, there was a reference to a paper. I went, wow, there's, there's, wait, there's a paper on this? Uh, it, and I, so I dug into it like, a, like an idiot. Uh, and the, the, it wasn't a peer-reviewed uh, paper by any means. But this person had basically just stuck like two people in a room and some, had a seismograph and went, look, it jumped when I poked this other person. Uh, and it was just like the dodgiest paper. But it just fascinated me. I went, well, they, they took the time to put in a paper. Uh, but I, I got so nervous about doing it. I don't know. I think there's something very confrontational about, uh, you know, essentially discrediting other creators. Uh, but I think it's really important, especially, I mean, you know, quantum entanglement, I feel like that's, you know, not, no one's going to hopefully base their lives around that. But when it comes to uh, psychology and consumer behavior, that's probably much more directly. I mean, so if it's affecting the actual language someone uses and how they interact with their friends, that's massive. So it's really important. Yeah, and and I and I've cut back on kind of mis- misinformation type content just because I I find it very psychologically stressful. Right? Yeah, like exactly. Because a lot of the times when you correct misinformation, a lot of the people who enjoy the misinformation are very upset with you. I remember, I think the worst thing has ever happened was uh, there was this astrology content creator who was making videos that she could use the patterns of the stars to predict the prices of Bitcoin and Dogecoin. What and recommending astrology crypto. No. Yeah. So, so re- recommended that people invest in cryptocurrency, and people would be in her comment section saying, "I just put five hundred dollars into Dogecoin," and I'd be like, "Holy crap!" Like, the, like people are making yeah. decisions based on this. So, I, I made a video about it. Um, I was more confrontational than maybe I should have been, and it, like it blew up on my face. I, I got doxxed. I, I had thousands of people going after my videos. Shit, um, really? That's why I'm more open about who I am. Yeah. Um, it was very spooky. There, there has been no 
community that is more toxic, uh, at, at least in my opinion, than, than the astrology community. And 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 by the way, no, in, in case you've seen, Sorry. yeah, in case you've seen recent videos, the person who talked to me was an empath, a self-described empath. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so, oh, uh, God. Uh, so, so well, I think it's valuable to correct misinformation. I think for, for me, I was like, holy crap, like people, they know who I am. They can kind of go after me. Someone like Dr. Inna can afford to, she has tenure or whatever version um, of tenure her school has. I don't have that sort of protection. I figure, you know what? It's probably not worth it for me to keep going after misinformation. I'm probably being a little bit too much aggressive. And and frankly, it's a little bit too much fun for me. So I should uh, cut back. Really? Okay. So like, you know, that's interesting that your final conclusion is actually, I also really, really like this. So, uh, well, you, you, you can like things too much. And, and <laughs> I, so. I, I think what, what, one of the issues is that you can go after kind of the big fish, right? There, there's some creators who are like really, really bad for stuff. And once, once you're done with them, you can't making videos about them so you have to go down to the next creator right mm. and maybe they make misinformation but it's not as bad and then you go into the next creator and, and and eventually it feels like you're seeking out reasons to believe that something is misinformation rather than responding to actual misinformation right you, you might start saying things that aren't there and and that informs some of my actual research on kind of status seeking moral aggression right because we'll often say you know this is bad this is evil but you can do that to look like a good person and i was worried that that was going to happen to me and I figured, you know what, I don't want to go down that path. I mean, totally smart. I think I've very much internalized a sort of critical voice in my head whenever I'm making videos of uh, of someone who's looking for, um, you know, to, like the most hypercritical person who could say, is that slightly inaccurate? Or is that approximation justified? Uh, which I think is useful to a certain extent, because obviously it's really hard to get across a nuanced philosophical or physics-based concept in a two to three minute video uh, without at least making, you know, some concession or some approximation. Uh, but yeah, I feel like if I actually embodied that voice and went after other people, it'd be difficult. But at the same time, sometimes with these, you know, quantum type folks who just put the word quantum in front of everything, you know, I'll go follow oh, yeah. their links. Yeah. yeah. But they'll they'll sell crystals that cure cancer or whatever. And they'll have all that something. And I'm thinking if someone buys into alternative medicine, that's that's huge. And that's why I feel like it's worthwhile to be pedantic about these things. And sometimes, at least when it comes to physics, trivial things, because no, 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 if you buy this, then it turns out you're, you're probably also going to buy into the idea that, you know, quartz has a vibration, which cures this. And then if you buy into that, this leads down this road of, you know, which matters. And, and it feels, it feels so exploitative, right? Because yeah. like the people who are going to buy into the, the quartz curing cancer, they're probably not in a great place if they're kind of believing stuff like that. They, they might even be hopeless, right? They don't have yeah. a lot of other options to go to. And you're giving them this false hope that if they buy stuff from you, that 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 you'll get better. And and that stuff that really upsets me. But I also worry that like I get too upset about it. Mm. Do you think that people who you have criticized in the past, or when we see people um, spot uh, you know spout misinformation, do you think they actually believe what they're saying, or do you think they're genuinely ignorant themselves? I well, you, you know, you, you can't always know what's in their head, but I, I, yeah, I. I I believe that they believe what they're saying because a lot of the stuff that they they communicate is sourced from stuff like TED Talks or uh, like New York Times articles where they really do hype up science. There's a really good book on this by Jesse Single called The The Quick Fix, where he talks about how we have this kind of public bias towards really snappy, kind of easy psychological findings and we'll latch on to, you know, really simple things. So I, I think in one chapter of his book, he talks about, you know, broken windows policing, the idea that if you like fix windows, crime might go down in an area. It's this really like punchy kind of line that people can believe and they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. It's intuitive. And this eminent scientist from Harvard is giving a talk on a TED talk stage saying, yeah, this will absolutely work. 
And I don't think it's unreasonable maybe for them to trust some of those science communicators. I, I, I put more burden on the science communicators um, for doing a bad job than I do on, I guess, t- TikTok science communicators, it feels a lot like are like second order communicators and that they're parroting what they've heard other people say. Mm. And so, and so I, I think they're probably very genuine and I don't think, I, I wish they were more responsible, but I also don't think they're evil or malicious. They're not, they're not lying. Yeah. I th- yeah, I, I completely agree. You, you know, I, I think it'd be bizarre for someone to base their entire sort of brand and life around crystal or crystal healing to do with quantum stuff uh, and yeah. not actually believe in it. That'd be sort of, very, and, and, and if you were an actual, an a actively malicious person, it would be a strange way to express it. This is how I'm going to cause harm to other people via crystals and buying yeah, into yeah. astrology. So, but I think bearing that in mind is really also helpful when I do criticize others because I'm, I'm thinking in my head and it might even it might even sound slightly patronizing, but I'm thinking this person is as much a victim of misinformation as the people they're putting the information out to. So, yeah. So, so I, I've changed some of my behavior. So when I do correct some misinformation, cause I, I still do that, but what I do is instead of stitching a creator or duetting a creator, what I'll do is I'll make a video where I say, well, some people say this. That's exactly what I do. That's exactly saying. what I do. Yes. Yeah. Address the idea. And, and I'll person. say, you know, some people do this. Let's talk about why that might be incorrect. And then, and then you're not putting it on a person, right? You're, you're just saying, well, here's this fact and here's why I think this fact is incorrect or misleading in some way. And I think that's a much nicer way to go about it. It gets less views, right? It's, it's less spicy, less punchy, but I think it's a little bit more responsible. Yeah. There's no drama. Yeah. So, which again, is probably better for our mental health. So, yeah. uh, okay. So swinging back to the academia type stuff obviously you sort of followed your interest uh, into getting to this research uh, and you come from a, a family of uh, people who work in the medical profession do you want to be an academic long term i mean you've mentioned you know comparing yourself to dr inner um, and you know worries about tenure long term it sounds like that's a goal for you absolutely yeah i i i honestly think that being an academic is probably one of the best jobs in the world really um, yeah i i mean well I'll, I'll, I'll qualify that. Asterisk, asterisk, being, a, asterisk. Being, a, being a tenured academic <laughs> is one of the best jobs yeah. in the world. Uh, get, getting the point of getting tenure, especially at like a good university, is obviously very difficult. But I think if you can get there, it's like winning the lottery. You mm. get to kind of research the stuff that you're passionate about, assuming you've chosen a field you, you like, which I think mm-hmm. I have. Um, you can't be fired. And you get to teach people. You get to think about interesting things all day. Um, and, and even though it eats up a lot of your life, I, I genuinely think it's a more fulfilling job than many other things that I could do, especially because, because my interest is in marketing. A lot of the corporate jobs, they feel a little bit soulless or exploitative. I think there's a lot of marketing research that is a little bit parasitic. Um, it's trying to kind of leverage people's inability to think about numbers correctly to get them to buy more stuff or leverages biases to get them to buy stuff they don't need. I think that's maybe. I, I, I have ethical issues with that. Whereas researching how people are affected by marketing is something that I find a lot more fulfilling. So it's a way for me to pursue my interests in a way that kind of meets my ethical standards. Yeah, because you just generate knowledge uh, that people can use that either as a way of defending against parasitic campaigns yeah. or you know, potentially potentially making them the worst fight. Yeah, we'll and, and, and you can absolutely do uh, like academic marketing research that's bad, right? Like you, you, yeah. could do, you could do research that gives companies tools to do more bad stuff. But at, at least the research that I do is often um, uh, from the perspective of, well, what might motivate consumer activists to take action against brands that have violated their morals? Um, and some other research I do is about charitable giving. So how can you motivate people to give to charity? So there, there's ways you can do uh, a little bit more ethical research um, 
and, and ways you can do unethical research as well. Do you have a particular book or author or researcher or indeed scientist, someone that inspired you? Because you talked about your journey and how you sort of ended up here. Was there a particular talk or something you saw which really triggered your interest? Or or is there some academic which you look up to and you go, actually, this person not necessarily embodies where I want to be long term, but perhaps embodies the sort of same research values I have or someone I look up to in some way? Sure. There's a, there's a few authors that I've really liked. One is Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom is a psychologist. I believe he was at Yale, but now he, he just moved to the University of Toronto. But he had a book that I think I read in maybe high school, early undergraduate, and it was called Against Empathy. Against um, Empathy, and, and, wow. And the, yeah. So, so the, the primary thesis of the book was that empathy as a tool for making moral decisions is probably not very reliable because our empathy is biased in a lot of ways. We feel empathy selectively for people that we like, for people who are our friends. Um, and you know, empathy can also be biased by things like racial biases, right? Mm. If you're a racist, you probably feel a lot of empathy for white people, but not a lot for black people, right? And, and so using empathy as a tool to guide your moral decision-making might not be all that great. It might just reinforce biases we already have. Um, and so he wrote this book called Against Empathy, where he kind of laid out a bunch of psychological research about the effects of empathy, how we come to empathize with others, and what implications it has for our moral decision making. I read that and went, that's super cool, right? Like just, just the, the, the fact that you can use all these psychological findings to make interesting points about morality um, and how people should decide, I thought was really interesting. And, and just the process by which people were researching how empathy affects moral decision-making was also really cool to me. So, so I, re I read that book. I listened to a lot of podcasts that Paul Bloom was on. He goes on a bunch of psychology-oriented podcasts, and he seemed like this really cool person who was kind of living the dream, living the life that I would like to live. And that was certainly one of the kind of the, the role models um, that, that inspired me to go into more psychological or behavioral research. I do this thing with checking out authors or, or particular books that I may be interested in, whereby I will listen to that person speak on a podcast first before buying the book, because I feel mm -hmm. like if, I, if that person can express their thoughts well, or I gel with their thinking, then it's a book that's uh, worthwhile reading. Is that something that you do as well? It's something that occurred to me now or... Yeah, a, a little bit. My, my, my general process is I might listen to them on a podcast or I'll see an interesting tweet about their book. I'll, mm. usually, I'll usually pirate the book, um, read it, and then feel guilty <laughs> and then buy the physical book. So I have, a, like, I have a bunch of books here that I've never opened, but I've read all of them, but pirated. Um, and I felt guilty and feel like I need to support the authors, but I'm impatient <laughs> and I don't want uh, to, go, to go and order things. Yeah, I, I have a similar thing um, more with uh, reading manga, whereby I've read so much manga digitally, where I'm slowly working through buying all the volumes because I feel like I owe these authors a lot of money. Uh, Absolutely. I'll get yeah. there eventually. But, but you, you know, you're impatient. You might, you, might, you might as well download it now. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Yeah, we can get into the whole thing. I feel <laughs> with pirating manga, it actually spreads yeah. the reach of the comic uh more often than not and you actually end up buying more but that's the whole thing uh so obviously a lot of the stuff you do is around ethics and polls do you have a particular ethical framework you subscribe to is there a particular ethical thinker that you think sort of had it um had it right sure um so I mean, what are your I'm morals even? A, yeah I, I'm, you not, I'm not gonna have a super sophisticated uh moral philosophy just because i i don't study moral philosophy i study moral psychology so mm, okay you know i i i i research how people might come to moral judgments right but that's not necessarily a statement on which moral judgments are correct yeah you're not I know, making I, normative I, yeah I, I skew consequentialist and and i realize that a lot of like philosophers are 
against consequentialism, I, I, I find it very difficult to imagine how I might make a moral decision without referring in some sense to the impact it has on the real world. I think, well, look, I'm not going to grill you on your <laughs> position here. I was yeah, just yeah. curious. Uh, but, okay, that's that's a really uh, useful distinction there. Uh, you're sort of interested in how people arrive at those decisions. So having made these videos with all these various different polls on TikTok, is there something that has surprised you about the ethics of your TikTok audience? I would say TikTok audience, but let's face it, everyone's in their own niche. So people who watch your videos or are shown your videos, is there anything that surprises you about their morality? Uh, there's certainly, I, I mean, I get a lot of people are interested in, I guess, the virtue of actions. And sometimes that, that surprises me the extent to which they are. So one of my favorite moral dilemmas that I've done is the dead chicken dilemma. And it came from this really famous paper by a psychologist, John Haidt, and he's at, I believe, New York University. And he was really interested in this phenomenon called moral dumbfounding, which is the idea that sometimes when you tell people about a scenario, they might say that it's morally bad, but they can't quite articulate why it's morally bad. And so one of the famous examples he used was the sex with a dead chicken. So I'm, I'm going to tell you that scenario, and I'm curious what you think. So a man is at home and he decides, you know, he, he would like to have sex and he goes to the supermarket and he picks out this really big chicken carcass, right? Yep. It's, it's already dead. Um, and he thinks, well, this will do. And so he buys the chicken carcass. He takes it home. He has sex with it. And then he cleans it out, cooks it, and then eats it. Is this morally wrong for him to do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I feel like if I'm analyzing wait, my... Wait, wait, was, that, was that a yes? Or... I, 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 the, that's, I think if you... I think I would have to say no. I'm analyzing my own internal process because the the main i think like the main reaction to that at least when i hear it is disgust but of course disgust is not the same as something being wrong uh, and obviously i feel like i'm doing the same thing that most people would do which is i'm thinking well at the end of the day uh, a dead chicken carcass is just inanimate inanimate matter it's there's no one's consent being violated uh you know you could replace the dead chicken with anything in principle a sex toy and we wouldn't think twice so what is it about the fact that it's a dead carcass, which would make this wrong in some way? You know, are there some more rights to a corpse? And if you say that and the guy's about to eat it, I mean, I, I suppose you could maybe someone, you know, who said there was, there's something inherently just, you know, th throwing um, uh, ideas out here. I suppose someone would have to claim that there is some, uh, some dead flesh or flesh of any kind or a living thing of any kind, even if it's died, has some moral rights uh, to you know being treated in a certain way or respected in a certain way. But you'd have to go very far to do that. And you know, why would it stop at a dead chicken? Why would it be you know, dead carrots? Be a whole thing. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like that's that's actually a really interesting one because at the end of the day, people who say no, it's wrong, I feel like they, you, you could call on them really nicely. Is that yeah, your, so, so your opinion I, as well? Like, or? That, that's generally my opinion. Like it's yeah. gross, but I don't think it's morally wrong. Um, but but what John Haidt did with with his his research is he actually asked a bunch of people this question, and he went to uh, poor countries and rich countries, and then within those societies looked at poor people and rich people, uh -huh. um, and he found that people who were in very rich, uh, we we call them weird societies, so Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies, tended to lean more on harm judgments to determine the morality of an action, whereas those who lived in poorer societies uh, tended to think that disgust was a really good 
way you could get at the moral wrongness or rightness of an action. And, and he had a bunch of these, um, you know, what one he also had was a, a, a case of consensual incest um, between fraternal twins who were sterile. Um, and so, so they're, you know, they're, they're the same age, they have sex together, they consent, they enjoy it. And that's it. And there's no chance that they're going to have a babies. So there's no, there's no chance of like deformities or anything. Um, and, and people will look at that and there's obviously a disgust reaction, right? Like yeah, any, yeah. anytime you mention incest, you're like, Oh my God, that's awful. Yeah. Um, but, but if you reason through and you apply a harm principle, there's probably no harm being done. And so a lot of, uh, weird subjects, again, the, the Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic subjects will kind of hum the ha and they'll say, well, I think it's still morally wrong, but they won't really be able to articulate it. Um, yeah. And and so I, I find that stuff really interesting. And 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 so when I make these TikTok polls, the thing that surprises me is I think a lot more people are just kind of owning their position, right? They'll say it's disgusting, so it's wrong. Oh, really? Right? So and, so and, when and, you put that and, poll out, how many people yeah. do, do you remember roughly what proportion of people said it was wrong to have sex with a dead chicken? I I want to say. Maybe like thirty or forty percent. Oh wow, that's um, actually pretty high. And 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 I mean, this is on TikTok, so a lot of people are you know kind of relatively well, relatively well off teenagers. Mm. Um, and so when I when I put that pull, a lot of people were just kind of owning the position of disgust equals bad, and that was surprising to me because I feel like the response I would have most expected from the people who said it was wrong was that, well, it feels wrong. I can't say why, but it feels wrong. But a lot of people were just kind of open about it. Disgust is bad. And I found that really cool. That's, yeah. I mean, I think also just the fact that you um, confront people with these moral dilemmas, I think are really useful sort of training exercises for realizing what your moral philosophy is, a sequence of questions. Yeah. And uh, well, what one, yeah. one, one issue you run into is that people also use the moral dilemmas to be edgy. Um, so so uh, P- Peter Singer had his famous uh, problem about, you know, kind of a child drowning in a pond. Hmm. Do you jump in the pond to save the child, even if it would ruin some nice clothes you're wearing? Um, and, and then he would kind of build that argument out to say, well, there's lots of children who are metaphorically drowning in, in some other country, very far away from you. They're basically a drowning child and you could pay 10 bucks, like ruin your nice clothes and, and save those children. And, and, uh, and I'll put out the moral dilemma and say, Hey, w- would you jump at the pond with your clothes to, to save the kid? And I believe 45% of people said no. And the top comment was kids are temporary drip is forever. Uh, so one, one, one thing you have to worry about is people using the polls as a joke rather, rather than, you know, like an honest reflection of what they think. So, so there's ways you have to design things that there's not a clearly edgy answer. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no joke that can be made about this. Yeah. yeah narrow yeah. you into being serious. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely enjoy all of the variations of the trolley problem. My trolley problem memes are a very niche. Oh yeah source uh, but i also enjoy that a trolley problem meme is just an altered trolley problem and as jokey as the dilemma may be it's still one worth considering the best one i've seen is one which um uses a sort of a quantum switch and says uh if the many worlds interpretation is correct then in some universe <laughs> in some universes you wouldn't have pulled the lever but you don't know whether the interpretation is correct so what do you do uh given this information that I thought was very curious. Like, like the, the, the quantum immortality problem? Kind uh, of, yeah. It's kind of quantum. Yeah, that, but the trial, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So someone's going to die somewhere. Uh, so it doesn't matter. Or, or But you don't know if there is quantum immortality. So uh, I presume then I with your like consequentialist ethics, um, if there was the standard one person on a track uh, and five people on the other track and it defaults to the five people unless you pull the lever, do your instincts lean towards pulling the lever then? Uh, to, to, to save the five and yeah, one? Yeah, save the five with one. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although, although I'll say, I, again, this is very unsophisticated. I, I, I will say that 
the morality of actions have to be judged by their consequences, but you, certain decisions can still communicate things about people, right? So, so someone is like, uh, they, they walk up to the, the lever and they instantly pull it. There's no flinching. There's no nothing. Yeah. Um, they just pull the lever and kill the people. I'm like, well, that might tell me something about you and, and how good a person you are. Whereas if someone goes, oh, this is really tough. I, I feel so broken up about this. And then they pull the lever. I'm like, okay, well, I can, I can understand that a little bit more. Um, and, and maybe that's just my emotional biases. I, I, fe- I feel like I would expect people to perform a little bit of hesitation before they intentionally kill somebody. I completely agree. It shouldn't be easy. My, my sister brought over a best friend once for dinner with her, the whole family. And I, I, just, I was just like in a pretty sullen mood. And uh, they joked towards me saying, Jack, do you have any questions uh, for, um, for Tash? Uh, and I said, have you ever heard of the trolley problem? <laughs> and I just gave the scenario to her. And she just immediately went, oh, yeah, pull the lever. And I went... <laughs> Generally, people take a little bit longer to think about it, Tash, but okay. Uh, so that was, you know, that's, that one stuck with me. Um, but hey, you know, I suppose in a situation yeah. like that, being decisive has its merits as well. Best not to analyze too much. Um, I want to ask you then about your philosophy on blocking, uh, because like I said to you beforehand, one of my favorite videos of you, yours, which I think about all the time, actually, is your highly, or at least I don't want to um, mischaracterize what you said, but the way I took it was blocking people is good. It improves both your experience of the app and theirs. Um, so would you mind elaborating a little bit more on that philosophy and whether you still stand by it? Sure. Uh, yeah, I stand by it. And it's something that I came to over time. Uh, I think that more blocking would result in a better TikTok and a better kind of social media uh, community in general. So I, I think lots of people stand to benefit from blocking. I could be a blocking evangelist here. So from the from the creator side, um, there's a lot of unhinged people who will who will comment on your videos, and and you'll find that there's a very small portion of people who make up the vast majority of crazy stuff that that you might see in a comment section, hmm. right? Or people who will spam, or they'll say really awful things, and by blocking them, you instantly make your experience better. Right, so I've had um, I've had very racist, very anti-Semitic people who have commented on some of my TikToks. Yeah, same actually. But but I'll notice it's maybe like three or four people, right? And and mm. the second I block them, everything clears up and and it's great again. And I think that was good for me from like a like a mental health perspective. Like it's nice not to be thinking, oh, there's people saying these awful things in my comment sections. Um, so that 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 that's one benefit. And and also when you're a creator, especially when you get to a decent enough size. One thing you might find is there's a lot of people who will stitch or duet you um, and they will do a sort of call out post type thing where, where mm. they'll say, you know, I, I think this is wrong for some reason. And you watch the video and like this person is unhinged in some way. Right. And th- they'll do it a bunch. They'll make a bunch of stitches. They'll make like 10 over the course of a day. And you go, this this is like not healthy for them. Right. And and then I'll block them and then they don't see my videos anymore. And then I don't see their videos anymore. And I think that leaves them better off and it leaves me better off because they can find someone else to obsess about, or maybe that's a signal that they should stop obsessing about people. And from the consumer side, um, from the view of the person watching the videos, I mean, I see a lot of videos every day that I think are genuinely awful. And I think there's a lot of creators out there who I think are also genuinely awful. And I have very little influence over what they do, what they post. So why would I want to see a bunch of videos that are just kind of like kind of ruining me from the inside when I could just block them and move on? So I have a bunch of people who are blocked just because I don't want to see their content. And sometimes it's not even they make content that I think it's bad. Sometimes they make content that I think is annoying. And 
why would I subject myself to annoying content? Right. Hmm. And, and, and there's nothing against them, right. There's just going to be stuff, stuff that doesn't work for people. I know there's people who probably don't like my moral dilemmas, right. They think it's like a little cheesy and it's fine. They can block me. And, yeah. and don't answer the poll yet. That, uh, should you block me if you don't enjoy yeah, moral dilemmas? Literally. Yeah. And, and I think that would make their lives better. And, and, you know, I think the big risk that you might be worried about is that by blocking people, you create an echo chamber. Um, That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 I guess, counter a little bit to that, I would mm. say is that, you know, different, ad- right. If, um, imagine you were trying to give advice to tell people, Hey, you should go out and drink more. Right. And, and, and go to a bar. Yeah. Right? If, if, I, if I was working that, for a Budweiser in consumer yeah. behavior, the marketing, you should go out and drink yeah, more yeah, Budweiser. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, 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 you could be telling people go, go out and drink more. If, if you told undergraduate Ethan that, that probably would have been good advice. I could probably have stood to, to go out and, and drink a little bit and, and have fun. If you're telling that to a raging alcoholic, it's probably not good advice, hmm. right? So when you're telling you know, people to block people, I think people block too little and that telling them to block people moves them up to a better gotcha position. threshold. Whereas if, if there's someone who kind of blocks everyone who disagrees with them, telling them to block more people probably hurts. I think that the majority of people, especially creators who I'm, I'm speaking to that I'm giving that advice to, have this kind of uh, internal policy that they shouldn't block people because it's cheating, right? You should always, you know, respond in good faith to people. You should always, you should never block people. And I used to have that position. I never blocked someone um, for, I think, a period of like a year. I just had a policy. I will never block. I will always like kind of engage. This is an open forum. Um, yeah, it's an open forum. We should debate in the marketplace of ideas, yeah. all this high-minded rhetoric. And... Uh, you know, I, I don't think that was a good policy because it meant that I was getting trapped. I wasn't able to like do a lot of stuff that I wanted to do. It was taking up too much of my time. And so I started blocking and went, wow, I, I have so much more time now. And I'm not, and I'm not going on a blocking spree, right? Like I, I'll have arguments with people and I don't block them if they disagree with mm-hmm. me, but I will block if that like it gets out of hand. Yeah. Right. Or, or I'll, I'll block if I, I think it's like too toxic. And I think that's a good place to be in. And while there's the risk of creating the echo chamber, I think the vast majority of people who hear my advice to block others are probably doing too little blocking, not too much blocking. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a bunch of things to say that. I think you could also just simply make the argument that if you block, say, you know, five, 10 people, but it gives you more energy to make better educational content, which reaches an extra sure. 10,000 people a week or, you know, compounds over months, then using your consequentialist ethical framework that checks out, right? Uh, you're still uh, yeah, you know, sure. net spreading more information. Uh, I, I actually haven't experienced much of the stitching spamming, mainly because I seem to be incapable of making a video shorter than one minute long. <laughs> you can't stitch any videos that are uh, longer than a minute. I've only really had a couple of people who have sort of spammed me. Uh, and yeah, if, if I see anything anti-Semitic, which happens occasionally when I talk about Einstein, or what have you? I just think, oh, you're too, you're too far gone. There's not much I can do for you here. So that, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about now. Yeah, I might and, actually, and, and, yeah, and go ahead. I, no, 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 you go. Uh, all, all I was going to say is, uh, I have started implementing your philosophy uh, a little bit. I haven't done it with creators who I find annoying yet. Uh, maybe it's because I've just tailored my algorithm really well, and TikTok knows me sure. so well, so I don't see too much uh, rage-inducing content, except for pseudoscience, where. At this point in time, I still want to see it because it just fascinates me. I, I read through comments of some of these videos of a video I know to be false. And, and currently, I'm, I feel like I should be vaguely aware of that. But ha- having heard you justify it in the context of these people who, in some sense, they would latch on anybody. It's not just a simple sort of disagreement, but they're just seeking conflict. And if it wasn't with, with you, it would be some, with someone else. And in some sense, you're kind of helping them by shutting it out. 
I think that's uh, that algorithm solves up. Yeah, I, I also think that blocking is a nice way to deal with people in a way that doesn't harm others as well. Because mm. I think there's a lot of creators who, uh, I, I've made other videos about this where you see creators who might get in kind of vicious cycles of um, that they'll make a response to a really mean commenter. And then yeah. a lot of other mean commenters will come in and kind of defend the mean response and it'll go in a cycle. And there's some creators who at this point, half their content is responding to these awful people. And, and I'm fully on the creator side in the sense that like, I'm so sorry you're receiving this abuse, but have you considered just blocking them because you're just continuing the cycle at this point? Um, and, and I also think on, on some level, when you're a creator who has hundreds of thousands of followers, if someone leaves a mean comment on your video, having a video response to them where you say you're an awful person or whatever, you kind of attack them, you know, you're going to have a lot of like crazy followers of your own who are going to go after that person. Yeah. And frankly, the psychological impact that I would get from a person leaving a mean comment on a video when I receive thousands of comments on a video is going to be a lot lower than this 50 follower person who's just some random account having a massive creator send thousands of people after them. I, I think it sucks. But sometimes you can't respond to everything and maybe you shouldn't respond to everything. I think that's good advice. I, the only thing I would say is that certainly following certain creators on TikTok, it seems that they, the, I mean, as we were talking about earlier, the, the drama, they actively use it to you know thrive on the algorithm and to get their videos yeah. pushed more. And in some sense, I wouldn't necessarily claim that they caught courtesy, but it wouldn't surprise me if they intentionally thought, oh, I'm going to make a certain kind of video, which I know attracts 2% hate comments, 5%, I don't know. Yep. because and then reply to it and there's a sort of yeah you're right there is a sort of weird perception isn't it where a, a creator can reply to two or three mean comments and if i see a video like that i'll immediately just assume this is one of hundreds when of course it could just be one comment and so everyone just piled drive supporting this person going oh yeah absolutely screw this commenter can't believe you're getting hated on so much that could just be a few comments but it definitely paints this narrative which is sympathetic so all for the algorithm, right? All for the algorithm. Uh, what does the current week uh, work week look like for you right now? Like, what, what, how, so you're currently doing this PhD. I, so, what, what, how do you? How, what, what's your what's your life actually look like, Ethan? What do you do? Uh, what, what I actually do, you know, I, <laughs> I, I wake up re rel relatively late. Um, I open up a book, I start reading, mm -hmm. and then it's lunchtime, and I go, "Crap, I haven't done anything. I've just read." Uh, and then I, I go and make a half-hearted attempt to, to work on something. Um, maybe I have classwork uh, that I have to do. Uh, I spend no more than maybe like 10 minutes a day recording TikToks or whatever. It's actually a surprisingly small fraction of my life. Um, so it's jealous. pretty easy to crank out a video. It's great. Um, I, I highly recommend doing moral dilemmas because you can just take some famous ones and, and repackage them. Uh, but uh, so, so I'll, I'll wake up, I'll do some reading. And then I'll say, well, I have some projects to work on. Like right now I'm working on uh, building kind of a, a web scraper for fan fiction data. Um, and so I'll kind of play around with that. I'll set some stuff or run. I, I don't have very busy days or at least the days I have are pretty chill. It's just kind of a slow plotting. Let's move forward on some projects and let's learn more. Stuff. Can I ask the, the web scraper for fan fiction data? Yeah. Uh, why are you making that? Oh, oh, for, for, for research purposes. Right. Okay. Um, I was going to say, yeah, just, uh, no, uh, for my, my, my sense is that, you know, a lot of word of mouth research in consumer behavior focuses a lot on things like tweets or, mm. or conversations between friends. Whereas I think fan fiction is a really interesting kind of extreme form of word of mouth. I read a lot of fan fiction as a kid mm. and frankly, 
Uh, if you are willing to put time into reading a 200,000 word Harry Potter fan fiction, you're probably really dedicated to a fan base. Um, and, and having these fan fictions can keep people kind of engaged with the media franchise. And I think investigating what motivates uh, content creators uh, on the fan fiction side to, to create more fan fiction is really interesting from a word of mouth perspective. Did you read a 200,000 word Harry Potter fan fiction? Or was way that more, just way, way more than one? Uh, way more than one. Yeah. 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 Uh, did you enjoy the reunion recently? Uh, I assume you watched the special, or have you become disenchanted? I didn't. I didn't, with I the didn't watch the special. I I honestly didn't have time for it. Um, oh. I, I yeah. I, I I need to watch it at some point because we we had considered watching it, but I, I just didn't have the time. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you have a favorite TikToker or uh, some particular TikTokers who are either science based or not? Uh, there, there's a there's a few that I really like. Um, one is do you know the account Odd Pride? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Astrid, she makes a bunch of interesting videos um, that are kind of, I guess, history oriented, right? Yeah, like it's a sort lot of kind of yeah. like in-depth explainers. Um, I really like those videos. They're always a little quirky, a little weird in a really good way. So I really enjoy reading that or listening to that. Um, I also really like Steve Psychology. Uh, I think he was formerly Steve the Psychologist, but he's changed his name to Steve Psychology. He's another uh, psychology researcher and he's an actual psychology researcher. I mean, I do consumer behavior. He does psychology, psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's done some really interesting research on uh, moral and political aggression and outrage expression online. And I've really enjoyed reading the papers that he's written. Um, but also he makes really interesting content on TikTok where he'll show kind of the, the videos of really famous psychological experiments. Right. So, so there, there's, you know, a famous video of putting people in a room and putting smoke through the doors as if there's a fire and you can have a bunch of Confederates in an experiment sitting in the room alongside the person uh, who's the subject of the experiment. And if all the people around them don't react to the smoke, people don't really like, you know, freak out as much. Right. Huh. Whereas if everyone starts like freaking out because there's smoke in the room and, you know, everyone's screaming, there's a fire. Um, so so he'll show interesting videos like that, 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 that got really famous. I'd say maybe like in the early 2000s where people really wanted to show, well, look, these different psychological interventions can have this real effect that's really visual and really easy to see. Is there a particular psychological effect that really did change how you interact with others or how you see people? Because I imagine someone who's, I know you paint to stay in consumer behavior, um, but obviously, you know, quite widely read. Is there something that you think about every day or for you that sort of sticks out? Uh, so one is the fundamental attribution error. Um, I have no idea what that is. Sure. So if you see someone, let, let, let's say you're walking to your apartment hmm. and you see someone outside kicking a wall, they're kind of muttering to themselves. They seem really angry. You might look at that person and say, well, they must be a really angry person. Um, but mm. inside the mind of that person, maybe their their dog died. Maybe their partner broke up with them. Maybe uh, they got screwed out of a business venture, right? And and that person has all these you know many reasons for being angry. But you don't know that. You've just seen their behavior, and then from that behavior, you infer something about that person, something fundamental to them. Um, I think that's an interesting bias. Now, to be honest, I haven't read research on that, so who knows? Maybe, maybe it's one of the many psychology findings that don't replicate. Mm. But I think it's an interesting framework um, that when you see people's actions, you probably shouldn't move from they've done this action to they are the sort of person who just does this action, right? That people have many reasons for doing what they do. And because we can't be inside their heads, it's probably worth it not to make that assumption. Maybe ask them and they'll, they'll have an answer for you. And, and you might accept or not accept their answer. 
but it's worth not making that kind of attribution error. Yeah, the tendency to quickly extrapolate to a narrative. I feel like that buys in with lots of, of uh, sentiments people have around first impressions, certainly. But um, <clears throat> also in therapy, whereby, or if you're learning sort of communication uh, with partner or constructive communication, a lot of it's not to say, you always are like this, or you're always, you know, um, annoying or frustrating, or you're always moping, to say instead, when you did this, it made me feel this way. That was, um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the I feel statements. Yeah, the I feel statements. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, I, 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 <laughs> I developed emotional maturity a bit too late. So for me, it was a revelation of going, right, just use this framework, memorize these four lines. This is the key to emotional health and good communication. <laughs> so I drilled that into my brain. And then I was shocked, shocked, Ethan, when I used that that framework and all my problems weren't fixed. But that, that's a debate. That's a thing for a different conversation. Uh, I won't make this about me. Um, <clears throat> uh, is there a, uh, so at the frontier of any research field, uh, oftentimes there are dilemmas or disagreements or big questions which are uh, open-ended or where there are competing theories or different sides. Uh, is there on the frontier of consumer uh, behavior consumer psychology, which you are studying, is there a particular sort of open-ended research question which sort of dominates the field or sort of stands out as these are the sort of uh, unanswered questions? Are you affected at all by the replication um, crisis that some of psychology is happening having as well? Is that part of it? Those are probably two questions, but just throwing them at you. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a there's a few different things to talk about here. I mean, one easy one is that I, an, an issue you see in some marketing research is a lot of the research on advertising, um, modern research that uses really big data and, and uses rigorous, more economics-esque methods, uh, has found that there's really tiny, if not zero, effect of some marketing or advertising interventions on people's behavior. Whereas, you know, past research will show these really big effects, right? Maybe you change the cover of a poster and people's mood really shifts when they when they read your advertisement. Um, so that, that that's an easy one. I think a harder one uh, is kind of more on the meta level. There's a big debate going around about how to deal with the replication crisis in general, because, and, and this is my personal sense, consumer behavior was a little late to the party, mm. right? I mean, the, the replication crisis was really identified in psychology, especially social psychology, and they've done a lot of work on, well, how do we make our findings more replicable? And consumer behavior is kind of lagging behind. Now, to be fair, I think we're doing a lot better than other fields because many fields don't even acknowledge that there is an issue with the replication of findings. But of the fields that do have the sense that there's replication issues, uh, it feels as if we're a little bit slower. And there's debates about how you effectively deal with it. There was an issue in the Journal of Consumer Psychology where we had people arguing that we shouldn't be doing things like pre-registering our methods uh, for how we go about research. Pre-registration seems to be one of these kind of hot button issues where people say, well, if you want your findings to be replicable, one thing that you could do is say, we're going to go collect data. And before we get the data, we're going to tell you exactly how we're going to analyze it so that you know we're not cheating. Because mm. one of the things that drove the replication crisis is psychologists might go out and get a bunch of data points. They'll take many, many different measures. And when they get their data back, they'll pick the measure that does well and say, this is what we were looking for all along. Mm. And, and just by chance alone, some of the measures are going to turn out to, to have something interesting in them. And so by pre-registering, you can say, well, we're taking out kind of that uh, subjective bias on the part of the researchers. Now, th there's always going to be some subjectivity, but at least with pre-registration, you can be pretty sure that they're not 
cheating, at least in such a blatant way. Hmm. But some people will say, well, we don't need pre-registration because how can we find interesting hypotheses if we can't explore, if we can't take a big data set and kind of look for random stuff and say, hey, this is cool. So maybe we should treat a lot of consumer research more as exploratory. And so there's a debate about, should we be looking for more confirmatory evidence or exploratory evidence? And how should we deal with that? And, and, and there's also a lot of issues tied up with uh, pre-registration and open science more generally, because the open science movement that has been pushing for things like pre-registration and more rigorous methods has been mostly white and male. Like if you look at kind of the, the big figures um, who are out there, a lot of them are men, a lot of them are white. And there's certainly this really aggressive culture involved in the open science movement where they'll do kind of call outs, where they'll be a little bit aggressive saying that research is worthless. And sometimes they target like, you know, new professors um, and do so in a way that people perceive as a little bit mean. And so people will say that the open science movement has a bad culture. Um, and the, the, so there's, there's beyond the meta debate about how to do psychology, there's also the meta meta debate about how that conversation is going. And, and I think I, I find it really entertaining, you know, on a, on a, I'm on a sitting here, level to, not getting involved. Yeah. I, I'm not getting involved. I'm not going to talk about it, but you know, I will read all of it and I see what everybody's saying. Um, so I, I think that's kind of one of the biggest debates that's going on in consumer psychology is, is how do we change our methods to get better? Because getting better is costly. Uh, if you want your findings to be more replicable, it means that you need more participants in your studies. More participants means you need to pay more to get them. It also means that people who are at smaller universities who don't have as much funding can't publish as much. The, the, the more, more, more gains go to the top. If you're at Harvard, you can afford to triple your sample size because Harvard will just give you a ton of money or you'll get lots of grants because you're at Harvard. Hmm. Um, whereas if you're at some no-name university in the middle of uh, Czechoslovakia, you're not going to be able to do that, right? And so increasing the cost for one to publish could be really harmful for people who don't have as much resources. But at the same time, you do want your findings to be more replicable. Um, there's, there's a lot of competing concerns here. So yeah. it's been interesting to watch that. Access to science and all of that. Um, I, I think generally whenever I speak to scientists, it's all just a lot of it sadly comes down to money. Uh, and obviously, you know, more money would not necessarily fix all problems, but certainly fix a lot of them. Do you... How, how, what, how would you define science? What is science to you, if you had to give a sort of definition? Oh, this is going to be really cheesy. It's okay. Um, That's good. Cheese is good. We like cheese. Science is not a noun. Science is a verb. Ooh, uh, I love it. It's something that you do. I think it's more of a, a mindset. I think if you're doing science, you're probably interested in finding out something about reality, and you don't want to fool yourself. And you'll use any methods you need to, to convince yourself that something is the case or isn't the case. And I think a lot of people, when they talk about science, they act like it's this like entity, this agent. They'll say science says yeah, well, there's no say. evidence of X. Yeah, yeah scientists yeah. say like, but th there is no, I mean, you, you can come to consensus on certain issues, right? If you're talking about global warming, you can throw out the statistic 98, whatever percent yeah. of climate scientists believe global warming exists. But it's not like there's some like thing called science that says global warming is real. Hmm. It's a bunch of scientists who are coming to their own conclusions, and they're all they they all have their interpersonal biases. They're all they're all individual people who are coming to their conclusions for different reasons. And I think e even setting aside scientists who use different methods, you you could use quantitative methods, qualitative methods, more empirical methods. You could you could go more on the econ side, more on the lab experiment side. There's all these different methods you could use, but everyone hopefully, if they're doing science 
are doing so with the intent of trying to find out something about reality. Uh, So that's a very broad sweeping definition, but I I think that's the best one I can get to because if if I gave you an answer, like it's forming hypotheses and coming to conclusions and testing them, you can always find a counterexample. No, I I think that's uh, extremely insightful. One of the, I mean, a bunch of things to say about that. Firstly, I I love what you said about science as a verb rather than a noun Uh, in the first episode, which I've already recorded. I use the analogy between uh, talking about science as how we talk about sport. So when people say scientists say, for me, it's like hearing sports people say, which sports people, what sport do they play? And sport as like a huge entity, you know, sports say I play sport. That can mean anything. You could be a professional, uh, you know, soccer player, rugby player. Is e-sport a sport? We don't know. You know, there's professional um, rocks, paper, scissors players. And so there's there's so many, you know, niches and unique methods. Uh, secondly, I want to uh, jump on what you said about the, um, you know, 97%, 98% of climate scientists say this and how really all that's saying is a bunch of people individually have arrived to their own conclusions. Something um, certainly a big influence on me uh, scientifically is a scientist called David Deutsch, who I've made a couple of videos about. And one thing he said in an interview once, which sort of I really carry with me is um, something I think to be true, but something that I don't think a lot of people would sort of sit nicely with, which is that the fundamental um, unit of science, of performing science, is argument. Like the foundations of science is fundamentally argument. And that, when I make videos talking about the philosophy of science and you know edging on this idea that a lot of science does just res- resolve around argument and reasoning, I think a lot of people get a little bit uneasy because... Well, argument that that's something for politics and something else science is meant to be hard and certain uh, and all that when one thing you said at the end which is uh you know uh you were talking about discovering something about reality do you think that science discovers uh or, or is our best way i should say uh to discover some sort of objective truth do you think that science actually helps us get to some some objective truth at this day i'm not saying obviously science isn't complete i don't think anyone would claim we have the objective truth but is that something you buy into or are you more sort of skeptical on that front. So when when I was an undergraduate, the philosophy of science courses I took were like social epistemology, feminist epistemology, yeah. um, and all those philosophies of science. I know you found it boring, but I'm bringing you down this route again, Ethan. I, I didn't find, I, it wasn't that I found them boring. I just did too much of them, and then I got okay. bored of it. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm we, bringing we you back for one last year. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so, so I, but, but I kind of agree with them that you know, can science find objective truth? I it, probably not. I, I hmm. think. Any honest account of science will probably tell you that scientists are, you know, enmeshed in all different social structures and that seriously shapes how they come to conclusions and also what arguments get accepted and what don't. So, for instance, if you look at just the process of getting a paper published, which is usually what people seem to think of as what science says, if they can point to a a single paper to get a paper published, you know, it's not just about the research you do. It's also can you write the paper such that it's understandable to other people? Can you write it with following the the social norms and conventions of your field? Can you present evidence in a way that other people in your field will accept? Everything is social in that sense. I don't think you'd ever be able to come up with a way that it it was objective in some way. I agree with a lot of those sentiments. Certainly, I remember when studying the history of science in my undergrad, the main thing that struck me was firstly what you said with regards to how much society and just cultural influences shape science to such a degree to me was just horrifying because i'd been under this illusion of oh yeah you know hypothesis test theory job done uh and secondly just 
in some sense, how miraculous it is that we know anything at all or that anything we do works. And just the amount of sort of cultural, I mean, depending on which historian you're reading, they'll come to different conclusions about this, but I would say cultural coincidences and you know this this concoction of sort of social effects which allowed science as an enterprise to flourish and part of that was to do with war uh part of that was to do with you know societal trends but ultimately nothing to do with knowledge generation uh and you know we, we seem to have created this worldwide machine which though i don't think anyone would be um i think anyone would agree that it could be improved but it seems to be working pretty well so far so uh pretty yeah. crazy uh, to, to put to, to push back on myself a little bit as well. Oh, go on, well, sure. Well, I think while I failed, to. yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, no, no, it's fine. Uh, well, I well, I think that there's maybe that we're not coming to an objective truth with science. I still think that there is some fact of the matter about reality that we are approximating. Right. Um, okay. So yeah, you believe in objective a, reality, and we will never know how close yeah. we get. But you know, science probably gets us closer because things work, and you know, planes fly, and yeah. Stuff. Well, that, that, that's what made me think about it because you brought up the idea of well, we can make stuff that works, and I think that is some evidence that we get there. There's a there's a philosopher Philip Kitcher who's mm. written about this, where where he basically says that you know, the fact that we can invent a plane and the plane flies, and we know that it can do so reliably, should give us some sense that we have some rough knowledge about what reality truly is with respect to flying. Right. The fact that we can do it so consistently, we have to have some knowledge, even if it's not perfect knowledge, even if it's not objective, we are approximating it, at least in some way. And, and there's going to be new stuff that we maybe find out about how flying works. But we're kind of there. Hopefully. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think the analogy that works really nicely and obviously physicists talk about it endlessly, but the uh, how Newtonian mechanics is the uh, low velocity approximation of uh, you know, general relativity. Because uh, and, I, and I expect that analogy holds true for almost everything that we develop, which is, and I have a couple of friends who I debate about this all the time, but they believe that there's always going to be another layer of complexity that in some sense, you know, reality might be fractal in that the more you zoom down, there'll be other generalized laws and other layers of complexity and small and smaller diminishing effects. And we'll never be able to articulate it in any one sort of coherent, neat, aesthetic set of equations. But at the same time, even if you concede that, approximating and you know newtonian mechanics is a wonderful thing and you know if science gets to the point where we have the issue of oh how far down this fractal do we go that's that's a good problem to have uh even if we uh, establish that uh, and this is something i to those that are more sort of epistemologically skeptical it's yeah it just i think it becomes very difficult if you hold the case of science just explains what we perceive or um you know our, our experimental results it's just very hard to explain. Well, why does stuff work? Why can we do more than we used to do historically? And if you don't buy into the fact that we can do more than we can do historically, then we're living in very different realities anyway. And there's a lot, there are a lot of other more fundamental questions we need to unpack before having this debate. So I, I, I always like to ask because, you know, obviously you're a practitioner as opposed to me, a, a sort of a, a fan, <laughs> obvious. So always have to ask what people actually think. Um, well, to, to be fair, I, f- I feel like when you're starting out in your PhD, you're very much a fan or a hobbyist. You're, you're not. You're not quite a practitioner. You're, 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 you're a practitioner in training. You're a roadie. Um, yeah. So. Oh yeah. Um, science in the media. Obviously, uh, you know, there's no. It's, it sort of relates to what we were just talking about. When people say scientists say this or the science says this, uh, is there anything in particular that frustrates you about how science is conveyed in the media today, uh, or anything that you think could easily be improved upon? I mean, I. I, I I assume you share the same frustrations that I do when watching things like the news and so on. 
Yeah, uh, I, I think for me, the the single biggest thing is probably the use of science as kind of a rhetorical flourish. I think there's a lot of people who they'll get into a political argument and then they'll say, well, I have this one study mm. and this one study says that I'm right about everything. And it might even be that the study says that. But, and oftentimes, if you read the article, it doesn't, but it's hard to respond yeah. in, in, in real time to a full study. But even if the study does agree with you, um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about debates about minimum wage. I think that's a really good case because there's a lot of back and forth um, about the effects of minimum wage on economic prosperity for for a for a given region. If someone's having an argument about should we raise the minimum wage or lower the minimum wage, and someone brings forward a study, they're going to say, "Well, I have this study by Carter and Kruger, and that says that you know minimum wage is good, or at least it doesn't diminish productivity." And they say I'm right, but if you included a few more studies, maybe you'd find that the minimum wage has a bad effect. And then maybe if someone else brought forward a meta-analysis, they'd find that, well, when you look at all the studies as a whole, it's probably a positive thing. And then someone else could bring another meta-analysis and find, oh, well, if you look at this other meta-analysis, there's something very bad about minimum wage. And then it can keep going back and forth and back and forth. But at the end of the day, I don't think anyone in that situation really cares about what the science says. They're just kind of using it conveniently because it's there, right? And and if it didn't support their conclusions, they'd probably say, oh, well, that study's biased because it didn't account for, and then they'll invent some confounder. I, I think the way that science is often used in the media um, is not done in a responsible way because it's not used as science should be, which is as kind of a truth-seeking tool. It's used as kind of a, a bludgeon to beat your opponents with. Because if they deny it, you say, well, why do you hate science? Yeah, I completely agree. The sort of, and that's when people make the claim about you know, science being the sort of the new religion or the new church, because yeah. it's the new sort of de facto authority in conversations. Oh God, and so. like, have you seen the signs that are like, we believe in science that people put on their lawns? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, like like I look at that and I cringe. And, and while I, it would be nice if you read scientific papers and, and, and could kind of, you know, synthesize the conclusions of the field. I think that'd be a good thing. But people act like science, again, is like this agent that agrees with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh, I find it so difficult. I've considered making a video. I still think I might, but I'm, I might, I mean, I, actually, I like your opinion on it. I've been thinking about making a video, which is called How to Read a Scientific Paper, because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously the sort of, uh, again, the line has been tossed back and forth over the last couple of years is, you know, to do your own research. And obviously doing your own research involves usually doing a study or an experiment, getting a grant, setting things up, actually acquiring new data, I think is what doing your own research should mean. But obviously in academia, doing your own research means reading up a lot of papers. Uh, and the reason why I've sort of hesitated on doing that is because, well, yes, I can talk through what an abstract is, you know, take a look at methods, conclusion, you know, reiterate that reading the abstract is not the same as reading an entire paper, which... It's a lesson that we all have to learn time and time again. The issue, of course, is that there's so much sort of lingo and context that's going into the field. You don't really know the whole context of why this person's writing stuff and the way they are writing it. Again, the sort of social factors that you mentioned earlier that are coming from this niche community, which you're just not privy to. So even if you did look up all the terms and digest all of that, you're not necessarily going to be able to understand the paper as in depth, and it's not going to be the final word. And I don't know. I, I guess the question I'm asking you firstly, do you think that would be a good video to make? But secondly, how do you stand on sort of, uh, and obviously you're, in some, you're a science educator, where do you stand on the idea of wanting to involve people to get them to think critically for themselves? Because I don't want to just spoon feed people answers and tell them not to think, because I feel, feel that's counter, uh, counterproductive. But simultaneously, you know, saying you don't necessarily know enough to have 
a critical opinion on this subject. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's a tough, I, first of all, I think the video would be an interesting one to make because it could help people. But at the same time, I feel like, and I've, I've made similar videos. I, I can't help but feel though, that when you're giving people these critical thinking tools, they're not going to use them as intended. There's a paper, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the paper, but I don't think I can right now. And they took people who were good or bad at math um, and then looked at whether or not they were pro-gun control or anti-gun control. This was in the United States. Yeah. And then they would present them with different data. Um, they, they would sit these people down and they would give the pro-gun people data that suggests that uh, gun control reduced deaths. Mm -hmm. um, and then they would give the uh, anti-gun control people um, uh, proof that gun control did reduce deaths. I don't know if I said the same thing twice, but uh, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah, yeah, yeah. They, the reverse. Yeah, so they gave them data that yeah. um, disagree with their opinions. Yeah, and, and yeah. they found that the people who were higher in mathematical ability were less receptive to the new evidence because they were better able to say, oh, well, this was biased because it didn't account for X, Y, Z. No, really? So, yeah, and it's it's a really tough thing because people who are really smart and really intelligent are really good at fooling themselves. Oh, or no. maybe not even fooling themselves, right? Because if you have this really strong prior belief that gun control is a good thing, and you're presented with evidence that gun control is a bad thing, well, it might only shift you a little bit, but you'll have all these other background facts that you can draw on and say, well, you know, there's all these other things that you have to consider. You know, what does it say about society? Did they account for, you know, wh whatever? They, they can invent as many variables as they want. Yeah. So I, I, I just almost doubt that people will use critical thinking abilities in a, in a productive way. If you tell them, look at the study and see if they use only undergraduate students to, to, to make a broad statement about how human psychology works. Yeah. Right. And then you show them a study that says, oh, a group you hate is actually really intelligent and smart. They might say, oh, well, this is only undergraduate students, so we shouldn't believe it. But if you show them another study, they might conveniently forget that, that, that criticism. Um, this is a very centrist position here, but, but I, 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 no, 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 I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, and it's depressing, but I expect probably true. I read a book, what was it called? Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, and I can't yes. remember the authors now, but um, and that's in some sense the most harrowing book I've ever read. And they, they sort of point links that the smarter you are, the better you are um, arguing against information that um, disagrees with your opinions. And so yeah. you, you'd think you'd be better suited to arrive at truth. When and and I, I, don't, I don't even know if that's a, it's hard to know whether that's a bad thing or not, right? Because if, uh, you know, I have very strong opinions that global warming exists. Yeah. Right? Like, like uh, I think global warming exists. I think it's a problem. If you were to come with to me with data and you said, well, actually, I did this research and global warming doesn't yeah. exist. It's not a thing. I'm going to be like, you know what? That's such a big claim relative to what I already know. Mm. I'm not just going to like spin on a dime and believe you. I, I don't think it would be a good thing if I spun on a dime and believed you. Mm. I would need to actually sit there and think and it might budge me a little bit. And then I need to see more evidence. I don't think that's a bad thought process, but I, I could certainly see how it, it could be misused to reinforce political biases. Completely. I, I suppose that links into perhaps why science has to be a collaborative group exercise, because if you have a bunch of people with strong opinions, on different sides of an argument and you hope that they build up their cases um, as strongly as they can and then they clash then hopefully you're going to arrive at some insight in, you know in the sparks of that war whereas if everyone's like oh i mean you know this new information points this way so let's all change our opinions uh you know uh cohesively then you know science would just flip-flop a lot more and perhaps would actually be similar to how it's portrayed in the media of you know 
spinning on a dime, which sometimes is how yeah, trade. coffee causes cancer. Suddenly coffee prevents cancer. Suddenly, <laughs> like, and, and that's a bad thing. We, we wouldn't want that either. You want some, some gradual shifting. Yeah. We don't want to change all our minds uh, at once. Um, brilliant. Ethan, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, I'm going to put some of these clips on TikTok, And so it'll be yeah. obvious for people to where to find you. Where should people find you if they're listening to this on a podcast, but haven't found you through TikTok yet? What are your contacts? Sure. You can, you can find me on TikTok uh, at tall psychology. Um, I did that because I'm tall and I'm not very creative with names. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at S Ethan Milne, M I L N E. That is my Twitter account. That That's generally where people can find me. Brilliant. And then the last thing I want to do, uh, which I might clip into a video, which is don't answer the poll yet. It's time for another moral dilemma. If Ethan commits a crime with all his knowledge about ethical frameworks, is it worse? And should he des- does he deserve a greater punishment than someone who doesn't have such a knowledge of ethical frameworks? Please now give your answer as a response. <laughs> That's what we wanted to do. Thanks. No, I'll, I'll say yes. You think Absolutely. yes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I am more culpable because I can better understand my actions. I think if you showed me situations where people committed a crime, but they didn't know it was a crime. So for Mm. instance, if someone pirates a book and they didn't know that pirating books was bad, Mm. I think that communicates different facts about them as a person than someone else. Um, And and so if if I have this great knowledge of ethical dilemmas, and you can debate whether or not I do, uh, I think that means that I should be held to some higher standard. Yeah. Uh, Ethics professors uh, should have much longer jail sentences is essentially what we're arriving at here. (laughs) Funny enough, I'm trying to remember there there was one study that ethics professors are worse at returning books to libraries. they, they, they don't they don't necessarily comport themselves in more ethical ways in which i think that's a perfect fact to end this interview on uh ethan thanks again um i'm really glad i got to talk to you and i hope we get to chat again sometime soon yeah thanks a lot cheers thank you thank you so much for listening if you'd like to support the podcast the very best thing you can do is share this episode with any friends who you think might like it or indeed give it a rating on whatever app you may be using to stream or download it. I also still very much consider myself a beginner in this, so if you have any feedback or comments, please feel free to drop me a DM on Instagram with any suggestions on how I can improve. Also, if you have any requests for solo episodes, please do let me know. Currently, I'm planning an episode dedicated as a general introduction to the philosophy of science and one focused on time travel somewhere in the next few months. In the meantime, my socials are at jack.loro on Instagram and TikTok, and my website is jacklawrence.net. If you'd like to support me directly, I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash jacklawrence, but please feel no obligation. I've got some really exciting episodes coming up in the next few weeks, which I can't wait to share with you. Many thanks for tuning in today, and until next time.